Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, books, and people that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Dr. Jean Houston, who's a world-renowned scholar, futurist, award-winning author, and researcher in human capacities, social change, and systemic transformation. She's one of the principal founders of the human potential movement and one of the foremost visionary thinkers and doers of our time. She's also a founder of the field of social artistry, human development in the light of social change. She was awarded the Synergy Superstar Award 2020 by the Source of Synergy Foundation for her exemplary work inspiring us to source our highest human capacities and the Visioneer's Heroine of Humanity Award. Jean is renowned for her gifts as a mythic storyteller, and she holds conferences, seminars, and mentoring programs with leaders and change agents worldwide. She's worked intensively in over 40 cultures, lectured in over 100 countries, and worked with major organizations such as UNICEF, UNDP, and NASA, as well as helping global state leaders, leading educational institutions, business organizations, and millions of people to enhance and deepen their own uniqueness. She's the author with Dr. Annalou Smitsman of the award-winning Future Humans trilogy, as well as the author of over 36 published books and a great many unpublished books, plays and manuscripts, if you can believe that. Jean, a very warm welcome to uh, Imaginal Inspirations. Um, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. And so I'm going to begin by asking you about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Well, I think the shaping moment is really moments. I grew up on the road. <laughs> My father was a comedy writer for comedians, <laughs> and he would have 13-week stints with these comedians. And often, especially during World War II, uh, they were in army camps. So I got at a very, very early age, say from four years old on, to see very different realities people so different, and it might be, you know, a very short distance. And I thought, why are we so different? And yet there's something, children have a very deep mind. And the deep part of my mind says, why are we so different? And yet we are ultimately of a great oneness. And that was the shaping. And how can I find out more about this? What can I do? My father, as a comedian, was always turning reality upside down, inside out. And so if I was going to have a conversation with him, I had to rise to his comic level and really make things much more interesting that they seemed on the surface, but get beneath the surface crust of consciousness and realities would abound, which is really what happens in comedy. Yeah, absolutely. No, and that, that's a shaping life influence. And in terms of, of mentors or influential mentors and teachers, I think that two of them, and you may want to mention more, would be Teilhard de Chardin and Margaret Mead, 
Well, Teilhard, I met because he lived around the corner from me, <laughs> just off Park Avenue, 86th Street. He was at 85th. And I was, I didn't meet him that way. I met him because I had just discovered my parents were getting divorced. I was 14. And I was so depressed. And a friend said, just run. If you run, you get, <laughs> you run away from your depression. Okay. So I took to running down Park Avenue and I ran into an old man and I knocked the wind out of him. I picked him up and he was laughing and laughing. He said in a French accent, are you planning to run like that for the rest of your life? I said, yes, sir. Looks that way. He said, well, bon voyage. I said, bon voyage. And a week later, I was walking my dog, Champy. He said, ah, oh, Fox Terrier. I had one many years ago in France. Where are you going? I said, well, sir, I'm going to Central Park to think about things. He said, I will go with you. And that's how we met. And um, I called him Mr. Taylor, Mr. Taylor, because his French name, Teilhard de Chardin, really didn't quite click in my mind. And we talked together for probably the better part of a year, I think. And it certainly was my 14th to my 15th year. And he was so merry and he was so inquisitive and he was looking into the deeper story of things all the time. And he would make me do the same or he would ask me deep questions. So I had to rise not to his level, but to open my mind into inner manuscripts I didn't know I had. Extraordinary. Of course, this was before he was that well known. Mm -hmm. um, because his yes. books, his main books, are only published after his his, yes. his death, um, no, and, and he died in 1955 on Easter Sunday, as you know. And yes. what 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 else do you remember about those conversations? Because I think there might have been a story connected with caterpillars and butterflies, which, of course, is the theme of this podcast. Well, yes. I mean, he would suddenly fall to his knees on the ground in the grass of Central Park. Oh, Jean, look at caterpillar. Ooh, <laughs> what is a caterpillar becoming? Moving, changing, transforming. And I remember the, that great word he said, metamorphosis. And I said, Jean, think of yourself as a caterpillar. Can you do that? Oh, yes, Mr. Taylor, here I was, 14 years old, nearly six feet tall, and I probably had little dots on my face. I felt like a caterpillar. He said, what are you when you finally become a butterfly? What are you? Uh, I don't know, Mr. Taylor. Yes, you do, you do, you do. Come, go, go deeper. Who are you? Anyway, being asked that kind of question when you're 14 years old really sets up a longing a longing for a kind of transcendence of your everyday ordinary self, knowing that there are other levels of yourself that are waiting to be recognized. It was like being in a state of speciation. You know, things go along and they're the same over thousands of years and then suddenly they jump <laughs> and you have a whole new way of being context. And I found myself in a sense speciating and asking deeper questions mostly about the world to come to him. And did he, at what point did you discover, as it were, who he was? Um, oh, because not for many years. Not no, for many years. years. No, well, it was not many, but it was certainly years later when uh, a friend gave me this book by Teilhard de Chardin. And as I started to read it, 
I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. this is my past. Wait a minute. <laughs> and uh, tear, tear, whoa. And so I talked to my friend and she talked about the formation of the new Teilhard de Chardin Society. So I went to the first meeting. And uh, so it was some years later, really. Yes, I can imagine it must have must have been a revelation. Although the conversations themselves were were obviously a revelation for, the, and and a kind of cosmic synchronicity that brought you together. Cosmic, yes. I mean, I I still believe that we are cosmic agents dressed in a biological space time suit, <laughs> you know, wandering through the cosmic the cosmic agenda. And I became very interested around that time, if not also before him, with the whole notion that are we, we are not encapsulated bags of skin dragging around very little egos. We are organism environments. We are symbiotic with the whole. And when we know that, then different levels begin to open up. I once wrote a piece for a friend on her birthday called Cosmic Mother Comes Calling because I believe that once one's mind shifts as his shifted quite early to ourselves as part of a, a cosmic force happening, mind co-creation, co-creation was a big thing with him, as I recall. Then things literally shift in one's mind in the way one thinks about things. You are not just a local self. You, you are extended through the universe, wearing your space-time suit. So I would say that's that's the way that happened. Yes, that's really quite... I became, I, later, I became deeply interested in quantum physics, which would be the outward uh, expression of many of these spirit, essentially spiritual ideas. Yes, I think so, because there you've got similar, I and mean, we had a talk from Max Velmans, and he was saying that as you go deeper and deeper into understanding the cosmos in, in physics, you, you come across more and more ideas of integration, non-locality, and, and interconnectedness, which of course is typical of the spiritual life as well. Yes, everything is connection. <laughs> Well, it's, that's that's a big realization that we need to arrive at as a species. And then, tell us a bit about Margaret Mead and her influence and how she she shaped your your thinking and and your life. Indeed, she was very tough. <laughs> my my parents were very gentle. <laughs> I never had a relative. She decided I was her relative. I mean, she was very short, and I am quite tall. And she would look up at me and say, you're just like me. <laughs> and I would <laughs> I said, oh, no, Margaret, I'm not at all like you. You are much smarter than I am. And I am much nicer than you are, <laughs> which is true. You know, she was a toughie. And she would give me tasks, horrendous tasks. Jane, I want a 40-page paper. And then she would, would be some terrible subject. I want a 40-page paper on creativity by the end of the week from you. <gasps> so, <40 I>, pages. <laughs> yes. so what are you going to do? Well, they always was substantial. She wanted substantial work. And so that's how I got to being able to write books, I think, and, and such. Because I, with Margaret Mead, you always rose to the challenge. 
always. Then I became a very close friend of her daughter, who in many ways was as brilliant as she, who just recently passed away, Mary Catherine. That, Mary Catherine, yes. Yeah. Yes, I wrote her, I, I read and reviewed her book on active wisdom not so long yes. ago. Magnificent human being, luminous, truly. Yes. And we actually sat together for months writing a screenplay the life of Margaret Mead. I don't know where it is. It was not too bad, as I recall. But goodness. Uh, yeah. And what what advice have you taken forward from from those mentors? Part of it was learning how to guide. I would have to say, being deeply interested who and whoever my student is or was, and finding ways of dropping my local mind and tapping into deep mind and their deep mind, and thus being a kind of evocateur of their becoming. Yeah, I love and that Margaret, word, evocateur. Yeah, and Margaret, both Margaret and Teilhard were evocateurs of the first order. One was somewhat more gentle than the other, certainly. Uh, but it, I, I find that to be the, the major gift that I have is that I'm an evocateur of people's wishes, deep desires, deeper reality, and above all, of their ability to, Dante says it in the Paradiso, l'amore che muove il sole e l'ocre stelle, the love that moves the sun and all the stars. Yes, I love that you quoted it in Italian. That's wonderful. I'm Sicilian, you know. Okay. Well, (laughs) moving on to books what are some of the books that that you found have shaped your your life and thinking obviously you've written an enormous yeah. number of books yourself but originally as a as a as a oh. as a when you were turning into the butterfly what what books inspired you shakespeare and it was more shakespeare and still more shakespeare my, my mother was a method actor and uh, when she came over from sicily in 1906 she fell madly in love with the english language and read 19th century poetry. And when I came along, she would have streams of poetry and I would have streams of poetry. And we would just poeticize together. So the language itself, and she too was fascinated by Shakespeare and I became that too. In fact, until I was 16 years old, my uh, kid name was Shakespeare or Shaky. And to this day, I still find myself just <laughs> calling forth reams of Shakespeare. It's, it's a sort of part of my being and who and what I am. And is there a other particular plays that are your favorites? I'm sure you must have favorites, but maybe there are too many to name. Right, I'll, I'll say, tell one that Twelfth Night, I can still recite the whole play to you. I remember the place where Olivia is actually a girl, but dressed as a boy. And she is given the terrible task of wooing for a man that she loves desperately, this distinguished lady. And the lady says, I have nothing to do with him, please, no. Unless you come to me to tell me how he takes it. And she is so shocked and she says, if I did love you in my master's flame, 
with such a suffering, such a deadly life. In your denial, I would find no sense. I would not understand it. And she was intrigued, says, well, what, what would you? And she falls to her knees and she says, make me a willow cabin at your gate and call upon my soul within the house. Write loyal cantons of contemned love and sing them loud, yea, even in the dead of night. Halloo your name to the reverberate hills and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out, Olivia, oh, you should not rest between the elements of air and earth, but you should pity me. Goodness, wonderful. Just sort of getting, uh, captures the moment. And so Shakespeare, and any, any other books or author you'd like to mention? I mean, it's probably, you don't know where to start. I would not know where to start, truly. I am a, a chronic reader of poetry. And if you got me started, you'd be very unhappy. <laughs> because yeah. we're just dreams of poetry pouring out. Certainly the romantic, certainly writers who break through the cult of forgetfulness. Arnold Toynbee. I read Arnold Toynbee in all the volumes from the time I was probably 14 or 15 years old. I even wrote a book about Arnold Toynbee when I was oh, about absolutely fascinating. Or 18. And it was the, the study of history and the study of the developmental stages of history where things stop, where they get called upon again. And of course, this influenced my life in working with international agencies, being a kind of person who, not exactly a secret agent, but I'm not, but, but interjecting in these countries where I am dropped in, unusual and often fanciful ways of rethinking the whole society in a way that is comical, evocative, and fun. You know, and I think that's why I kept being sent to these countries. Well, Toynbee, it's very interesting because I have a connection there um, as well, um, because I taught at Winchester for six years and I started the Toynbee Society because Did he was you? a scholar at Winchester. And then he went to New College, yes. Balliol, sorry. And then and yes. I've read I haven't read the whole of the study of history. I have read the whole of the, the abridged volumes, which is still a thousand pages. Mm -hmm. And I think his work on the whole notion of the creative minority, for instance, yes, in shifting. Yes, yes. A, yes. And I see our kind of movement as a kind of, as a creative minority within the existing culture. Absolutely. And he, yes, he worked at the, worked in the Royal International Institute for International Affairs. Um, mm -hmm. And so he was sort of at the cutting edge in institutional terms. And when he, I'll just tell you one amusing story connected with Winchester. If you're a very distinguished um, pupil, ex-pupil of um, Winchester College, you get invited back ad portas, which means you're received by the entire school in the main courtyard. And you're addressed in Latin by the senior scholar of the time. And Toynbee went in about 1974, shortly before he died, in fact. And he was the only person to receive this honor who then replied in Greek. 
<laughs> having been addressed in Latin, uh, which which I, I thought was was uh, typically erudite. And his his book Experiences, I think, is so interesting. I don't know whether you know that one, where he talks about the importance of love and the need for a revolution of love if ever peace is going to come to the earth. Yes, I recall that. Thank you for reminding me. I really must go back to that. So, yes, I mean, in his dialogue, he did a series of dialogues with uh, Daiseku Ikeda in 1975 called Choose Life, which I imagine is in your library somewhere. Yes, it is. Um, Jean, let's go on to sort of key moment of insight in your work in in relation to consciousness. Does anything spring to mind? Key. There's so many keys in my life. It's very hard to (laughs) answer that kind of question. My husband and I, my late husband and I, did a great deal of work on states of consciousness. And yes, we used hypnosis. And you may know that he and I wrote a book called The Varieties of Psychedelic Experience. I had the only legal supply of LSD in New York City when I was in my early 20s. And so I was doing, we were doing legal work studying the effect of LSD on human personality. But then, as the control, and the control group couldn't just be paramecians with human beings. Uh, the control was to use a different form, which would be either hypnosis or the evocation of different states of consciousness. Because there's no question that different states give you rather different realities. So that would, that would be it. I, I mean, I had hundreds of research subjects over quite a few years. And I mean, I had, a, I remember, I had such a complicated life. I'd get up at four in the morning. I would have spent the evening preparing my lectures and then jumping on two trains to get to the place that I was teaching. It was in upstate. And I would be teaching philosophy or psychology and then come home and prepare dinner. <laughs> and then we would have new research subjects. And it would just go like that. And it went like that for years. So it was this hyperactive exploration of consciousness through many different modalities. So TR was right. <clears throat> You've kept running. I kept running, yes. Kept running. And then how, do, how does your understanding of consciousness, these states of consciousness, influence the way you live your life? Well, I have certain practices, clearly. Certain forms of meditation, but also forms of uh, physical movement. I a part of my life, early life, was that I was a serious athlete. I was a fencer, actually. Okay, I didn't know that. And I was even asked, it was strongly suggested, that I prep with the fencing academies for what was it, the nineteen fifty five Olympics, I think. And. Um, my father, who was to the right of Genghis Khan, said, <laughs> dog, my little girl's going to go against them, darn the Russians. But then the rest of the story came in. And I was asked to put on a great deal of weight, like 40 pounds of muscles, if I was going to go against the Russian ladies. <laughs> who it turned out some of them were not women, as you may have yeah. heard at that point. And I said, well, I, I can do that. <laughs> um, and then my dance teacher said, Jeannie, you realize what you're going to look like if you put on 40 pounds of muscles now? 
No, Miss Strang, what? And she said, a brick outhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. So I did not go to the 1955 Olympics. No, goodness. Well, oddly enough, my uncle was was the public school's champion in fencing, um, in epée, sabre, and foil. But I wasn't any good. But I, I, I did... I did excel as an athlete. I ran for Scotland on a three thousand meter steeplechase. So we have that we have that sort of athletic background in in Connor. And I think it influences your life because you're you have to practice a lot or train a lot, and and that gives you a kind of inner discipline that really stands you in good stead. Yes, you you train a lot, and thus when you write books, you stick to it. You stick to it. You persevere. Yeah. So, Gene, we're coming towards the end of the, the podcast, and so I'd just like to ask you if you have any particular proverbs or quotes that you live by or, or that are your favourites. The human heart can go to the lengths of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries cracks, breaks, begins to flow the something with the upstart spring. This is the time of the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now when wrong comes up to meet us everywhere, never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul men ever took. Affairs are now soul-sized. The enterprise is exploration into God. What are you making for? It takes so many thousand years to wake. But will you wake for pity's sake? Marvelous. I've heard the very same poem declaimed by Sir George Trevelyan. That's who I got it from. from Oh, did you? Yes, when oh. I was in years ago, and he gave me that poem and and some some wonderful. What was the other poem he gave me? Not I, not I, but the wind that moves through me. A fine wind is blowing the new direction of time. If only it bear me. If only it carry me. If only, most lovely of all, I am borne by the fine, fine wind that moves through the chaos of the world. Goes on. But those Which two I think points. it's D.H. Lawrence, is that right? Yes. Yes. No, I, I remember those two. I, I have his magic casements, you know, which is his collection of, of poems that well, Gene, um, any advice you'd give your younger self? I I'm, you've been so true to your calling for your whole life that maybe you wouldn't need to give your younger self any advice. Hmm. Despite the fact, my dear, that you have some doubts about who you are or what you should be doing, keep on that path of exploration. You don't have to excel at anything, (laughs) but keep exploring. Keep lifting up the soil from the old ways of being and feel free to really run play, laugh mostly, as you prepare for profoundly new ways of being for a new time. 
Jean, thank you so much for your words of wisdom, your presence, your contribution. Um, it's really stellar um, to have you on the podcast. And uh, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, David. I so enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Thank you.